Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. Company culture has been a vital topic amongst HR leaders for quite some time now, with many paying special attention to cultivating their cultures. The pandemic has drastically changed everything about how organizations do business, including how they manage their cultures. With many companies experiencing uh, such changes in 2020, it's a critical time for employers to be revisiting their strategies around building a thriving and inclusive culture. We're pleased to have with us today, Neil Sahota, an IBM master inventor, United Nations AI advisor, professor of UC Irvine, and a globally recognized speaker and author. Neil's a founding member of the UN's Artificial Intelligence for Social Good Committee, and he is the author of Own the AI Revolution, Providing a Future Forward Look at AI, and focusing on how businesses can use it to commercialize while doing good in the world. Thank you so much, Neil, for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. Really excited to be here, Jim. Me too. So most experts know that corporate culture is important. Uh, Has that importance grown since the pandemic started? Why or why not? It's a great question, Jim. And I think corporate culture has taken on more importance and more priority since the pandemic. I mean, most of us are living in a virtual work environment, and for a lot of people, that's a big change. And so there's a lot of disconnectedness, and you know, while there's tons of collaboration tools, how do you still foster the same level of collaboration, connection, you know, innovation, inspiration, motivation? And that really means emphasizing more on that feeling of community and that sense of team which means the the meshing of work styles and personalities has actually taken a much more important role, especially for managers and supervisors. The whole concept of digital transformation was one that people have been talking around, around for a long time. A lot of experts were saying, this is inevitable. You know, we should really be, be laying the groundwork. We should really be making this happen. Um, and then the pandemic happened and it had to happen. Um, we were forced to do that transformation. And I guess I'm curious as to whether you think that that it was successful. It's a good question. I, I think we've had mixed results. Um, we, well, we've had the tools and, you know, when the pandemic, the lockdown we started, there was a lot of focus by the tech companies on really tooling up and improving some of the features. But while there was always been a lot of talk, I think the preparedness has not been so great. I think that we were not really ready to exploit the technology and exploit the capabilities we had in large part, we didn't know. Um, You know, being like a part-time professor before the lockdown even started out here in California, the university, you know, and faculty leadership had been talking about, okay, well, if we have to close things down, how would that work? You know, we do use Zoom and there were kind of the pieces were kind of there, but literally overnight we had to shut the university down, right? There was a suspected case. The chancellor made a decision Monday night that everything just closes. Even the classes at 8 a.m. tomorrow have to go virtual. And suddenly 
the crush happened, right? People didn't have Zoom accounts. People didn't know how to use Zoom. The way you teach in class, it doesn't quite translate how you teach uh, online. And I saw the same things at work. Like, you know, my better half, her company had the same similar type of struggles. And I think while we kind of intuitively kind of know and it seems to make sense on paper, doing it has turned into a completely different story. You know, one of the things that's been really interesting about this, and I've talked, I talked to a lot of HR professionals, um, is, you know, what they're saying is that their organizations are indeed focusing on the individuals of the, of their company in a way that maybe they never have before, or a way that wasn't really a priority. And I feel like that was kind of unexpected. I, uh, there's always something that gets left behind. There's always something on the back burner. There's not enough time in the day, not even a 24-hour day, to do all of the things. And so there's always going to be something that's left behind. I think corporate culture, company culture at a lot of organizations was that thing. Because, you know, you've got to get the books ready. You've got to make sure your products are going out. you got to make sure the marketing's done. It's really the kind of thing that the best organizations know how to manage both of them at the same time. But that leaves a whole lot of other organizations that were really struggling. And it's been kind of nice to see how, I mean, they were forced to do it, but everyone's home. So a lot of people are home. So you really have to talk to them in a way that you didn't before. You really have to connect with them in a way that you didn't before because you you want to make sure the work's getting done. You need to talk to them to find out what's happening. And, you know, now what I wonder is, What's being left behind now? Oh, that's a great question, Jim, because you kind of get the operations. You're spot on about engaging your employees. What else is happening? I think you're seeing a lot of companies that kind of struggle and say, well, what's going on with the continuous improvement? What's going on with the innovation? You know, a lot of companies were resistant to kind of the virtual work environment because they felt like people being together created some natural synergies. Right, it kind of created those aha moments, and I see a lot of companies now trying to figure out. Well, if I kind of get my employees in a good state, morale kind of gets back to where it was, or hopefully is better. How do I produce those insightful moments again? And I think we're so rooted in what we know, and just and I get that that people are looking at different ways of trying to make some of these things happen. I you know, spent many years working in management consultant, you know, of course used to work for IBM. Uh, I'm used to a virtual environment, right? We're, we're always traveling around, a lot of people want to work from home. So we set up like, you know, community events, like, you know, the happy hours and all these things where people just get a chance to connect, riff, vent, and try and create those moments that might spark that aha moment. And I think that's what's kind of gotten left behind. I uh, I know that you know uh, my my uh, university and a few people I know their employers have tried a couple of social events, but it's kind of it, it feels forced. It's probably the best way to put it, right? Mm. That okay, we're we're just kind of doing this. It's something different. There's not that same <laughs> level of camaraderie and comfort where you might have a couple of people hanging around the water cooler and chit chatting and might actually spark that moment of innovation. It. It asks, it kind of begs an important question, which is, was company culture ever real? Uh, And however one might define the word real. And if it was, 
is virtual culture real? Is it more or less? Well, good questions, Jim. I do believe corporate culture is real. I've uh, I've worked with many clients, so I've definitely experienced different <laughs> type of companies, and you know everything from work style to risk appetite. Um, and you know sometimes it's not a match. I think all, all of us that mm. have been you know part of the recruiting process have seen that that sometimes you might find a really good candidate, very qualified, but they're not a good fit personality-wise, culture-wise for the team or the company. And it's really important that chemistry. Is there a virtual culture? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't call it a, quite a virtual corporate culture. I think it's kind of the next evolutionary step where it's, it's, it's kind of the new, I shouldn't say new, the next normal for companies. And that, how do you just work in a different type of environment? So if you have a company that's very like risk averse, they tend to be very concerned about things and they don't wanna try a lot of new ideas. I don't think that gets lost in the virtual environment. I think that kind of DNA is still in there. It's just how do you tap some of this potential? You know, how do you get people engaged? Those, those, I'll call it kind of like operational methods are different, right? And I, I think we've all Absolutely. experienced Zoom fatigue. Yes, staring at a Zoom screen is not quite the same as you know talking to someone face to face, even if you can see them on video it's a different way of interaction. And I think we have to kind of retrain ourselves to look at more of the subtle cues, the body language, the word choice, even the inflection of our voices, which is why you actually see a lot of people turning to things like artificial intelligence to try and supplement some of those skills, or at least help us get some of those insights, try and connect with people at a deeper level. Can you just talk a little bit more about what role AI could possibly play in a virtual culture? Be happy to because there's there's actually a lot going on. Um, I'll, I'll I'll talk about two things just in the interest of time. So one is a lot of companies are tapping into um, neuro linguistics and psychographic mm -hmm. profiling. So these are two AI capabilities where essentially you've taught the AI things about psychology, body language, word choice. And there are actually tools out there. It's like there's a company called Cyrano AI where um, if you're on a, if you have their Zoom plugin, right? And you're on a recorded Zoom call, their AI actually listens to what everyone is saying and actually decomposes what they're saying. And they can tell you what's their learning style. Like is it auditory? Is it visual? Is it kinetic, right? What's their level of commitment? So are they very serious and passionate? Are they kind of compelled into this? Tell you what things actually matter the most to them. So if you're gonna to talk to them, here's the language you need to talk. You need to focus on these things and even suggest what words to use that'll resonate better with them. So it's, it's a way to try and one, connect at a better level and learn how to speak people's language in a virtual environment. That's right. very interesting. Uh, before we go to the other one, I want to talk about this one a little bit more. Um, you know, it's well known that in-person communication is king. You know, body language really uh, amounts to the majority of the way that we communicate. And it's also been well known that, you know, a phone call, an email, they just don't have the same level. And even when you're talking about a video call, you know, even if you're really paying attention to the other person, you're not seeing their whole body. 
Uh, you may be distracted if there's multiple people on the screen, so you're not going to have sort of your sixth sense isn't going to be uh, as fine-tuned. So what we're talking about here is is software that's going to fill in the gaps, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to help exactly fill in those gaps. So the, those subtle clues that we might pick up in person and maybe it's like more of a one-on-one -on -one conversation, we can actually pick up virtually, but even if it's a, a meeting with 10 people or even a hundred people. So just think about some, knowing some of these things, like, mm. you know, this, this person cares more about the fun factor, or this person cares more about the value proposition, or, you know, this, this person likes to hear a lot of like action type of words, or you know, this person actually learns kinetically. So you can look really great on video and use a lot of body language and, use great words, but that's actually not how they connect and understand information from you. Uh, I have some concerns, naturally. Um, you know, when you're sitting across from somebody and you, you in real life and you sense that maybe they're not connected or maybe they're not interested, you know, if you have a negative experience, typically you don't then say, hey, guess what? I had a negative experience with you and here's my concerns. It becomes something that you sort of tuck away. Maybe it influences you later on. Maybe it doesn't. And it has an opportunity to evolve and change. When you're talking about a computer system writing down or cataloging these qualities in people, it somehow becomes more real, more concrete. Like the difference between having a secret thought about somebody and writing that thought down. Are these things that people are other people are concerned about? How are they handling that issue? That's interesting, Jim, because I've actually never heard anyone say that. And it's a, actually a salient point because it's kind of forcing us to maybe confront reality because we're really good about rationing things away and saying like, oh, you know, Jim seemed disengaged, but maybe, mm -hmm. you know, he's got two small kids at home and we've all been locked down for several months and, you know, Right, we we do a good job of trying to rationalize something away, and now we have the machine telling us, "Well, this is actually how it is." All right, and I think it, it's 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 a bit of a forced acceptance that I think for most people, most people kind of take it to heart. There's I think there's some grudgingly acceptance, but I think grudgingly because more so the the big challenge I usually see with this technology and this use is they find it hard to believe that a machine can do this better than a person can, right? They, they think there's mm. you know, some intrinsic qualities and you know, there's some emotional level. Obviously the machine, the AI is not feeling, so how can it do it better than a person? Well, the machine doesn't get distracted, right? It's, it's not thinking about what to make for dinner or what the kids are doing over there. It's got this laser-like focus on you. It's, it's watching your body language. You know, they say there's 2,000 points that reveal a lie on your face. Best person can watch five to seven in real time. The AI is watching all 2,000. So we've actually found that machines are actually much better than people at picking some of these things up. But That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, I think it might be surprising to some people. I've been following, you know, AI and robotics intelligence for a long time because it's fascinating. You know, I'm a sci-fi guy and there's always the question as you know, not to, to get too deep, but what is the quintess what is quintessentially, what does it mean quintessentially to be human? Right. And 
what I've come to a conclusion is, is it's to be a somewhat poorly constructed combination of all kinds of ideas that are at odds with each other, constantly shifting and changing. Memories are evolving and changing to, I mean, we're never really a thing. We're always just sort of this amorphous concept loosely contained inside of our skin. And machines are exactly the opposite of that. You know, the only biases they have are the ones that we program them to have. And they are in many ways all about, they are about concrete facts. This equals this, this equals that. And that is very alien. Even though we're the creators of that kind of thing, that's very alien. Or maybe people don't even want to accept that that they could be classified as something that they could be made nailed down and that their experiences, personalities, and conversations could be concrete. And one of the things that's interesting to me about that is that if someone were experiencing, how do I put it? I always thought it would be super cool if robots took over the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about completely just let humanity evolve their technology with any, without any regard. Maybe that's just the next step. And then I went to those, the grocery store and they had that little aisle cleaning robot. And I just immediately hated it. You know, I didn't like how it moved or how it got near me or what its motivations were. It's the dumbest little robot. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but it forced me to confront, you know, my sort of fantasies about what I would want AI and technology to become and robots in particular with the cold, hard unfeelingness of it. And so if you're plugging something like that into a culture, a company culture, if you're plugging something like that into interacting with the actual factual people in a company, I mean, won't they have similar reactions? Won't people be concerned about what this is doing to them or what it all means? They will. They are. Um, I hate to say it this way. It's change is tough for most people and we have a natural tendency to resist it. And I'm not saying that all change is good, but, you know, interestingly using your robot example, um, you know, working with a lot of companies, especially, you know, four or five years ago in my Watson days and Alderaan systems and SoftBank and all those guys, we actually went out of our way to create robots that were not human-like, right? They were very much robot-like. Mm. They looked like robots. They moved herky-jerky. They talked with the computer voice, right? <laughs> and people actually didn't like that. They said, how come we don't make it more human? And we're like, what? They're like, yeah, how come you can't make, you can figure out all this great AI stuff, but how come you can't make them sound like a human? How come they can't move more smoothly? And the funny thing is they actually can. We actually could do all that. We could actually give them a few thousand different voices. They could sound like a British woman or a Japanese man. And we thought that people would get freaked out if they were too anthropomorphized. And we were actually getting feedback that's the opposite, that they said that, I'm going to be working with this robot or this is going to be a concierge in my hotel or a shopping center. I want them to be as human as possible, which was surprising. It is. I mean, especially, you know, for people that are familiar with the uncanny Valley, that was, I think the whole impetus behind it is if you get close to human, but not all the way human, there's a wrongness about it that people feel at a primitive level to, you know, which is, always been something that's very interesting to me, but 
I, you can see examples of it in some sort of animations. I know the, the um, Polar Express was sort of infamous for how wrong the conductor was because they got so close, but not quite there, you know? And yet that's what people wanted, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think the norms we expected were, were different, right? We were too worried about uh, if it's too human-like, you know, people will feel weird and they'll be more concerned about losing jobs and stuff like that. And we went the opposite direction, right? Thought that it's an easier way to try and, you know, integrate these, some of these things in. And we got totally the opposite feedback. Like people actually want it's want this. It's it's kind of like the privacy issue, right? Where mm. you always hear, oh yeah, protect data and make it secure and protect people's privacy. I don't, hopefully, no one really disagree with that, right? But the funny thing is, we also a lot of people at the same time they want Amazon to know this. They want Facebook to know the data because if they're like, if you're gonna serve me an ad or a coupon, it should be for something they want to buy. Right. They want that personalized service. And so it's a weird dichotomy going on. Let's ground this back into company culture. Um, the vert, the concept of virtual culture, you were beginning to tell me one of two th- ways that AI was being used uh, to address this issue. Do you mind telling me the other one? Yes. The second one is actually around corporate culture. And so there's a lot of tapping into AI, especially the graphic profiling capabilities, psychology to help, you know, for lack of a better word, deconstruct people, their work style, their attitudes. And so just taking, you know, a few things that a person may have written, like truly written, whether that's a few like Facebook posts, LinkedIn profile or a resume, you know, the, the AI is actually generating across the 56 personality traits, a score. And they're comparing that with the culture of a team within the company or the whole organization and companies are tapping into this for recruiting, for team forming, for career development. You know, there's a very big law firm called O'Melveny. You know, it's no secret that they're using AI now. And so if you want to go work at the firm, you have to register to play this game and the AI runs the game and you do some things that don't seem to be quite job related. You're, you know, kind of taking these little quizzes and stuff. And what the AI is really doing is assessing, are you a fit culturally for the company? Would you not just survive, but would you thrive in the atmosphere of a Melvany and the little pods and the, you know, the different practices inside the firm. And as you take this test and the AI is scoring you, if you score high enough, and it looks like you're a match, you'll get invited to an interview. So you think about traditional recruiting, you know, you get you put the job, you get the resume, you do the keywords, you get your list of 10 or 15, and then you do the interviews, and then you try and assess, you know, are they qualified and try to figure out are they are they a fit for your culture? It's hard, right? That last part's hard because most people yeah. don't behave like they normally do in an interview. They yeah, they've inverted the process, right? Now the first thing they do is, are you a fit for our culture or not? And so then we'll check the other stuff out. And they're doing the same thing around people internally, their career development, right? Trying to figure out what's the right match of people together to form project teams or, you know, functional teams. And is this person suited to be a 
a, a marketing manager one day or a marketing analyst or, you know, and so forth. Bad news for people out there that are just doing this for the paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> well, got to be good at something now. I mean, unless, of course, the AI values that as a motivation. You know, one of the things I didn't start off in in a uh, office environment. I always just worked when I needed to work, which was always, of course. Um, but, you know, very much just for the money because I have things I need to do. And in order to operate my life, I require... I require that uh, flow. It wasn't until I got into sort of the corporate world where people started talking about all this other stuff. And one of the things that was very interesting to me is I'd be in these meetings and people are saying how excited they are about a new project they're doing. And I'm looking at them saying, there's no way that that person is actually excited about this. And it took me a long time to realize that there was indeed something more going on that corporate cultures really do eventually create in people like me other kinds of motivations than I just need a job so that I can go home and pay my bills. You know, it was a kind of an interesting learning moment for me. Well, imagine if we could speed that process up, Jim. I mean, especially if you're recently out of college or, you know, you're kind of like an entry level job and you don't quite know the lay of the land or what the opportunities are, but based on your own natural abilities and inclinations and your personality, it helps identify some things you'd probably be very good at and you'd probably enjoy doing, right? And even the right people to, to work with. Yeah, and I did ultimately find that. Uh, it didn't take terribly long. You know, the job I got hired for wasn't anything I was even remotely interested in, but it was 2011 and jobs are hard to come by. Uh, and I, I had the skill, so I said, all right, you know. And uh, ultimately, I found my way into the, the editorial role you know, and now ultimately doing this, which I enjoy very much. So it was one of those things where it did ultimately work out, but it would have been so easy for it not to have. I mean, at any step of the way, one little wrong turn, and I would have had to start all over again somewhere else. I'm not surprised, and I hate to say it, that we as people are sometimes not the best judge or evaluator of people's talent. I mean, I've heard so many companies tell me that you know, we let go of people that we thought were mediocre and now they're superstars that are competitors, you know, and like, what, <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> you know? It's that ineffable quality, you know, and it really does come back to, to culture, the, which is a word that's thrown around a lot. But to me, what it means is giving people the opportunity to thrive and innovate uh, without fear to be able to sit down at people that are their supervisors or their supervisor's supervisors and say, here's my idea. And even if it doesn't get implemented, you're, you're not punished in any way. It's just, it's, there's nothing better than someone having the, the opportunity to fail and then try again. Oh, we all know that makes logical sense, but how many organizations are willing to do that, especially when we're, under the gun with work and there's a zillion things going on, right? We, we always say failing's okay, but our, our, our tolerance, maybe acceptance of it is not where it should be. That's a good point. As we talk about, you know, as my organization talks about the future of work, we talk about where HR is going, the automatic focus is on remote work. But something happened when the pandemic started, uh, almost the creation of new classes in our country where, you know, a bunch of people got fired and aren't employed. You have a bunch of people that got to work from home 
And then you have this other group of people that were considered to be essential or have to be at their job in person to do what they're doing. And the way that an organization, like if you look at an organization that has both of those things going on, so an organization that has, you know, a large managerial support structure and a manufacturing sector, the support people don't need to be there. The manufacturers do have to be there. And now you have a real division that already existed, but has been exacerbated. How would you approach someone that's trying to create a virtual culture, but also has a very real physical culture happening at the same time? Great question. Um, it's a lot of work. Uh, and I don't mean <laughs> that in a bad way, but I think the, the one thing I see that companies are really struggling with is they're trying to replicate what they do normally physically, virtually, right? It, it's almost like I have this, I just have to automate it virtually and, and we're good. And it's like, uh, the not quite the same thing, you know. <laughs> I'm sure we've all experienced this. That you know, especially at this point where you see people, you see them on a video conference call, and you can tell they they haven't quite gotten ready. They probably haven't showered. They're, they might still be in their pajamas. I see a lot more of that. <laughs> it's like that's not really. I'm going to say okay, right? For a variety of reasons. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not trying to judge like morally or anything like that, but. You can tell that people are starting to get disengaged. They just feel isolated. They're anxious. And it's like, you can't just say, we're going to do a virtual happy hour, right? Hey, we're all going to have some fun. Four o'clock today, we're all going to hop on and grab some wine or a beer and chit chat, right? It's like we've equated video conference calls now with work. And so when people are doing that, they're going to think of it's work. And maybe some people you know, don't want to have a beer or wine or whatever the reason is. And so we have to think about what are different ways we can actually engage people in a virtual culture. And one of the th interesting things I found is actually some companies, including something that I've helped do actually with my, my classes, is kind of have a virtual background kind of competition, so to speak. And so when we get together, people try and find the most interesting virtual backgrounds. And we've started to like theme it up. So we'll say like, you know, okay, this week, uh, you know, pick, pick, have a virtual background on a place you've always wanted to go to, right? Or next week it might be like, pick something that's a bucket list type of thing. You know, and people go like, does that really work? I mean, great, you got a couple of things to chat about, but you're actually inviting people to kind of share something about themselves. You know, and people are like, oh, whoa, what's that background? Is that like, you know, the the, uh, you know, Great Pyramids of Giza, or, you know, is that Antarctica? And it gives them a chance to tell a little story, right? To tell them why they picked this background, but they get this chance to share. It's almost like having that water cooler talk in a physical office. And I found that that helps kind of re-engage, reconnect people. And so we have to look for those types of opportunities. We have to find out what makes our virtual culture work not just try to replicate what we're doing in the physical environment. That's a great example. You know, it's, it's such a little thing, but it accomplishes so much. And those little tricks were always important to find and are always difficult to find too. They are, and we're not used to thinking about it, right? I, I can't quite remember what the numbers were, but there's less than 20% of people are used to working in a distributed environment. And so it's a huge mind shift change for everyone, especially companies, and especially how you think about how do I 
kind of maintain or craft this virtual culture. Some of the some of the research before the pandemic about engagement rates was pretty shocking. You know, uh, up up to eighty percent of of workers disengaged, and then of course there's a smaller percentage, but in my opinion, a much more important percentage of people that are actively disengaged, as they call them, the people that aren't just not doing their jobs or just phoning it in. They're actively seeking to destroy their organizations. Um, that was something that I feel like could have been a little bit more visible in the office and now is going to be very difficult to ascertain one, you know, and I suppose this is where your, your AI solutions come in, but one, you know, when someone's getting disengaged, you're not seeing them at their, you know, all dejected at their office, or you're not seeing them get up 50 times from their desk. And then the person that like wants to do some damage is really left largely unsupervised. Um, how, how are you grappling with these kinds of issues? That's a fantastic question, Jim. I think a lot of people have learned that working in this kind of environment requires some pretty good self-discipline. And if we're not engaged, it's really hard to maintain that level. I think when it comes to people managers, I think they're really realizing the people part of it, because if we're all in the office together and someone's disengaged, maybe you detect a little earlier, maybe you try and coax them, but you always say like, well, you know, if you don't shape up, you're going to ship out, right? It's not the same anymore in that trying to maintain that level is so much hard, harder. I mean, with great AI tools, it's on us to try and figure out because there's so many more external forces in play, right? We're seeing a rise in mental health issues, like you know, people being locked down, isolated, depression, anxiety, addiction, all these things are unfortunately skyrocketing. So is domestic violence, child abuse. That I think when it comes to us being people managers, we have to actually learn to emphasize more on the people. It's not just the tasks anymore, which means we have to find ways for people to feel safe or open up. And if that's not with your, your manager, or your supervisor, we've seen the smart organizations start little side groups other HR, almost kind of like a ombudsman or you know, a corporate therapist, so to speak, where people feel a safe environment to kind of open up a bit and say, well, yeah, okay, I'm kind of feeling depressed or, you know, I I I feel like I'm working really hard here and I'm putting 10 hours a day in now and it's not being appreciated or I'm working with several people that aren't living up to their end, you know, not honoring their commitments. There's a whole, I think one thing that COVID has done is it's really shown a spotlight on all the things that were kind of weak or just kind of good enough in our organization. Absolutely. And those things aren't working anymore. They've been strained to the limit and it's not about, okay, how do we throw a bandaid on that? It's like, we have to start figuring out new ways to do things and we have to find new ways that was good enough. This is not going to work anymore. We have to find the better way of doing this. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because it used to be that, you know, if you're, because people didn't want to bring their negative experiences to work when somebody's performance slipped to the point where they were let go, you just close the door. And from the employer's perspective, case, case closed problem solved. And in sort of an ironic way, everyone being 
outside of the work, the, the workplace has made it so that they're somehow closer and you can't just shove everything behind a door anymore. You know, you're not going to, maybe you won't have as much visibility into someone's negativity, but in, in you know, negative problems, I should say. Um, but in the same time, you kind of do, you know, you're going to see on a Zoom call, you know, the state of their house, who's there and isn't there, you know, um, that what they look like uh, physically, sort of what their true, almost their true self is. And at the same time, you know, employers, many employers have really decided who's going to stay with them and who isn't by now. And the people they've decided to keep are, in, in their view, essential. You can't just float people away anymore on an ice block. You know, you got to you gotta do a little more. And I think that it's been very encouraging from my perspective to see people understand that and, and try. And it's just this kind of interesting space where where that inward focus into our homes, our work is now looking into our homes, kind of puts a lot of responsibility on the employer that was always there, but wasn't visible and was far too easy to skirt. It's very true, right? And I know that some people are uncomfortable sharing a little too much about their personal lives, which adds an interesting wrinkle to things. I actually know one company that there was so much concern and backlash about this that they banned video conference calls. Really? They did, yeah. And I'm not so sure that was a great idea either. It's not just being able to see people's faces and try and at least connect on that level. It's like, it's also a good kind of, it gives us a lot of visual clues and shows us level of engagement. And it's like, you're, you're making the job of maintaining that team, the culture, probably a hundred times harder. It's an interesting choice. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Yep. <laughs> is there anything that, any final thoughts that you have? I know that everyone is anxious to return back to the way things are. Um, but just be brutally honest, that's just never going to happen. This is not about trying to get back, and it's not about a new normal. I very much tell people this is about creating the next normal. Right? We're always kind of changing and shifting. And I, one thing I think a lot of organizations has learned is that we can actually do this. We can actually work in a virtual environment. And they're not really planning to restart their offices like they used to have it. I mean, even law firms, that which were fighting like crazy, saying like, well, there's no way we can collaborate with other attorneys and paralegals <laughs> and our clients have now realized, yeah, we work really well, really efficiently in a virtual environment, we don't need this office space. We can work on the culture aspect, but we can do this. And I think it behooves every organization, every HR leader, every person out there, the people management responsibilities to start saying like, this is going to become the norm. I have an opportunity to shape that norm. What should I be doing and what tools can I be using to actually do that? So rather than worry about what's going to happen or the threats that might be involved, flip it around and seek the opportunity. Well said. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me on. This was really fun. Yeah, you're most welcome. Listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what we should cover next, or if you have any thoughts about the podcast in general, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorksPodcast, or if you just want to say hi, you could drop a line there too. 
Thank you very much. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.